0: This is Pet Life Radio. Let's Talk Pets. Dr. Cat Gone to the Dogs is brought to you by Heroes for Healthy Pets. We're passionate about your pet's health. And (coughs) iHeartDogs.com.
1: Dog lovers, welcome to Dr. Cat Gone to the Dog. I'm your host, Dr. Catherine Prim, and I'm a small animal veterinarian and dog lover, and I am owned by an amazing standard poodle named Sky. Today, I have a very special guest with me, Dr. Joe Barges, and Dr. Barges is a veterinary internist as well as a veterinary nutritionist. So it's pretty safe to say that he has the scoop on pet nutrition. So we'll be right back with Dr. Vargas after a word from these sponsors. Let's Talk Pets on PetLifeRadio.com. Welcome back to Dr. Cat Gone to the Dog. Today we're going to discuss canine nutrition with our guest, Dr. Joe Barges. Welcome to our show, Dr. Barges.
0: Thank you for having me on the show. I, uh, I appreciate the invitation.
1: Well, we're very excited to discuss with you some of the burning topics in canine nutrition. So I shared with my group on Facebook uh, that is Dogs that I was having you today. And I asked for everyone to sort of ask to me what they wanted me to ask to you. So I hope you're ready. Hold on to your hat because we have some questions for you. I'm ready. The first one, and, and this one has been a bit contentious because the people are arguing about it. So the question was, do you think dry dog food is of any nutritional
0: value? So the answer to that question is yes. Dog and cat foods that are sold over over the counter as the sole source of nutrition for a dog at one or more of the recognized life stages, which are adult maintenance, growth, pregnancy, and lactation. By law, they have to be complete and balanced and provide adequate nutrition for one or more or, or all of those life stages. So they are nutritious in in that sense. When you look at a bag or a can, it will say this food meets or exceeds nutrient profiles based on feeding trials or, or testing or AFCO protocols, something like that. The thing to keep in mind is that um, that guarantees nutritional adequacy. And so that refers really to an average dog. And so average dogs do very adequate on those foods. The question becomes, is your dog an average dog? And so do you want to try and feed something that is better than adequate?
1: So you would say it's more about survive and not thrive in some cases?
0: um i wouldn't necessarily even say that i think they thrive i think the what we're on these foods i mean they've been around for decades and so they you know dogs can do very you know can do well on these foods and if it's an average dog who's got good health then they can do quite well on it if they have some breed associated problems or they develop or acquire some issues that can be managed nutritionally then we may want to intervene you know with a different type of food that's better than adequate. And that includes healthy dogs who are at risk for developing other issues. When we see large breed dogs that are prone to arthritis as puppies, you know, what I talk to owners about, pet parents about, is to feed their dog a therapeutic diet that is designed for joint disease. So even though they don't have joint disease or arthritis at the time, the diet may help prevent it from happening because their breed of dog, a Labrador or a Great Dane, is at higher risk than other breeds of dogs. So we want to try and intervene with a more than adequate diet in terms of trying to prevent something from happening in the future.
1: Okay, so you're a really great guest because you're throwing in the plugs for what I believe in, and that is including your veterinarian and the choices that you offer to your dog. So yay.
0: Absolutely. And I'll send you my bill when we're done.
1: Oh okay, okay. (laughs) Well, so definitely joint supplements. And the the, really the best part is you're echoing what I tell my clients, and that, you know, that's like a feather in my cap because I'm giving them good advice. So so you're saying take the individual pet into account and include the veterinarian in those choices.
0: Absolutely, I think you you know you can talk to any veterinary student and say, "Here's a breed of dog, Give me three things that they're prone to developing, and you know when you are dealing with pets, you know I, we get to the point i don't I'm not sure why this is. we do a lot of preventative care for our dogs and cats in terms of infectious diseases, but we don't think about it in terms of nutrition many times, and yet that's something that they have to do from day one of life is eat and so we know that certain breeds of dogs uh, have different diseases. So why not try and use nutrition to help prevent that from happening because they're at a higher risk?
1: Oh, I love that. Yes. I mean, our food is what our body is using to build us, especially in these young dogs. So this is another little thing that I have posted about and talked about and gotten some feedback, let's just say, on what about grain-free diets?
0: Yeah, grain-free diets are sort of an interesting uh, phenomenon. You know, it was sort of dismissed as a fad. It didn't really fade away, I think, that many people in the pet food industry thought it would. The, The idea behind it, at least it originated in the idea that grains cause a lot of problems. And they can have the potential for causing some problems. They do show up on lists of potential Food ingredients that can cause food allergies, things like corn and wheat, they tend to, at least in studies, be very low on that list. And we, you know, tend to think of other ingredients as being the more likely problem, but they're on that list. The thing about corns and, and grains and stuff, there are two things. One is, uh, grains in general, one is they're cheaper than animal-based protein. And so pet food companies use grains because it's cheaper to make the food. And you can still get a, a lot of good nutrition from it. Dogs and cats can still, cats even, can still digest carbohydrates and can do it quite well. And you can use a combination of ingredients to meet the nutritional needs of, of a dog, even with grains. The... The other side of it, though, is dogs and cats, dogs, but cats as well, do not have a carbohydrate requirement um, in terms of it being at all present in the diet, except at the very end of pregnancy and the beginning of lactation. So it is possible to feed dogs a zero-carbohydrate diet. Grain-free diets are not zero-carbohydrate, though. Grain-free diets tend to have carbohydrates in form of potatoes or other starches or vegetables. So the grains themselves, dogs and cats can actually digest okay. Average dogs that are healthy can do quite well with it. But certain breeds of dogs don't tolerate it well. Certain, you know, if your dog is not an average dog, then that may be a way to prevent that problem from occurring.
1: So I hear almost every day in my exam room, well, I don't understand why he has whatever, vomiting, diarrhea, itching. I feed him the grain-free diet, and I kind of try to explain that it might not be the problem. The grain might not be the problem. It's just been kind of hyped. So I'm, okay. I'm glad that you're here to kind of set us all straight.
0: Yeah, there's actually been no studies to show that grain-free diets are better than grain-based diets in dogs. But again, I think it depends on the individual patient, the individual pet, as to whether that's the right way to go or not. And you know, not to divert too much because of the time, but food allergies are actually not that common in dogs and cats. Now, there are food intolerances that they develop, but a true allergic immune disease is not really that common of an occurrence in dogs.
1: That is excellent. That's an excellent point. So I think that this leads us into the labeling of pet foods, because I had someone ask a question, what about holistic food?
0: Yeah, there's not really a definition, legal definition of holistic. In all seriousness, and again, my opinion, but in reality, all foods are holistic. I mean, holistic, the definition is looking at the whole picture, basically. Veterinarians are holistic doctors. You know, we, we're not, I mean, you know, we're not a cardiovascular surgeon that all we do is operate on the heart. Even as a specialist in internal medicine, I see more than just one type of disease, diabetes or kidney failure, you know, things like that. So we're holistic anyway. And when you look at holistic foods, all foods are holistic if they're complete and balanced. They have to be. I think what people confuse holistic with is whole ingredients and limited ingredients, natural, organic which are not necessarily the same thing, but those do have legal definitions in terms of what pet foods can say. So there is a requirement, a wording requirement for natural. The United States Department of Agriculture, USDA, has very specific guidelines for what organic means. So holistic to me is just a marketing term. I agree. Because it doesn't really mean anything. Now, whole ingredient diets... That's a different story, and I think there's some benefits to that, and that's what people want. Millennials now are looking at eating food for themselves and for their dogs and cats, their pet children, that are whole ingredients that don't sound like chemicals, that don't have some science-y sounding name. And a lot of pet food companies started doing that 10 years ago, and a whole lot more have jumped on the bandwagon in the last five years.
1: Well I think that there is a bit of an opinion, at least what I'm getting from these comments, in the opinion that if it is manufactured, it is bad. And I I don't think that's true. Can you speak to that?
0: Yeah, actually I think there are all foods are manufactured only unless you're feeding your dog a, you know, a live rabbit. I mean, everything has to be rendered or even butchered or, you know, I mean so there's processing involved with all the foods that we eat, unless you grow your own vegetables and raise your own cows or whatever. So I think, again, what people are looking at is what's normally done in most commercial pet foods is heat processing, which helps with shelf life and cooking things. Grains, for example, are more digestible if you cook them. That's the reason why you make boiled rice and you you know boil corn and things like that. So heat processing isn't necessarily bad. It actually makes many things proteins and carbohydrates, more digestible, more nutrient available. I will tell you also, though, that there are some downsides to it. There are some things that can occur, and people are starting to look at this, and we're actually doing some research in this area, looking at the heat processing of foods and a, a reaction that occurs that causes sugar molecules to kind of get stuck to proteins. And these are called advanced glycated end products. And there's some, you know, evidence in certain diseases in people that they may play a role in managing those diseases. So it's probably a balance of everything.
1: Well, that's exciting. So I have a few other pretty major things I want to discuss Mm -hmm. with you, but I want to take a quick word from our sponsor. So we'll be right back to talk about canine nutrition right after these messages. Let's talk pets.
0: Let's talk pets
1: on Pet Life Radio.
0: Pet Life Radio. PetLiferadio.com. Pet
1: Welcome back to Dr. Gat, Gone to the Dog, and our discussion about K9 nutrition. Dr. Barges, I want to pick up where we left off, and I've got some other questions for you, so take a deep breath. What about healthy treats?
0: I think healthy treats, um, they're easy to do. I mean, there are certainly commercially available ones that are are fine. Uh, Again, healthy treats can be table foods. I am not a disbeliever in giving people food to dogs, but it depends on what you're giving. There are certain treats we know that can be toxic to dogs and cats, chocolate especially, dark chocolate, uh, raisins and grapes, macadamia nuts, those things. So you can actually go on the ASPCA website, I think on the AVMA website and different websites and find lists of things that you, you should not give to your dog or cat. One of the things you want to avoid, though, are giving too many. And... You know, treats should be treats. They shouldn't be the only thing that dogs and cats eat because that's not usually complete and balanced. So, you want to use them as treats. Certain dogs can't handle high fat treats, so you probably don't want to let them eat a stick of butter, you know, or something like that. So, again, a little bit of meat now and then, cheese, carrots, broccoli, rice cakes. Those are all, you know, acceptable treats.
1: And of course, you should include your own veterinarian when it comes to what to feed your dog because he or she will be familiar with your dog's own individual needs and you know, issues. Correct. Okay. So what about probiotics and dogs?
0: So I'm a believer of probiotics. And there's a lot of benefit that you can get from probiotics, not only for intestinal problems like diarrhea, but for other non-intestinal and non-infectious problems. And a lot's been done and a lot is being done in humans. And we're just now kind of getting into this arena in dogs and cats uh, in pets. But we're finding that there are situations where probiotics really help. And if they help to treat diseases, then they probably help prevent problems. So why not start early? And the reason it helps is those bugs, the bacteria and the probiotic, which are live organisms, if it's a, a good probiotic, colonize the inside of the intestines. The intestines are involved with metabolism and immune function, and so it helps to modify, change, and sort of uh, shore up the immune system and metabolism. And so there's a lot of potential benefits from probiotics.
1: Do you think it matters where my dog lovers get their probiotic?
0: Yeah, absolutely. There are a couple of things, I know we're out of time, a couple of things you should know. Supplements in general are not as well regulated as, say, drugs and other things, but human supplements are actually better regulated than veterinary supplements. Veterinary supplements actually don't fall under the guidelines that are used in humans. They actually fall under food, and so they're even less regulated. I tend to actually use more human supplements than veterinary-specific supplements. There is an organization called the National Animal Supplement Council, NASC, that is sort of like the good housekeeping seal. Makers of supplements can provide information about their supplement, and they get an approval of, you've proven that what you say is, is actually there that you've, you've got good quality control and things like that. So when we look at veterinary supplements, we tend to, I tend to go to companies that are members of NASC. But on the other side, I also tend to use more human supplements, human probiotics rather than veterinary-specific probiotics.
1: Well that's interesting because I always recommend the the species that it's designed for. So that's excellent. I yeah, actually
0: that yeah, and you. I'll say real real quick actually there's if you read the microbiome, microbiome probiotic literature there's no such thing as a species specific probiotic and the problem with many veterinary products is there're not enough bugs either numbers or types whereas the human products tend to have a whole lot more, you know, hundreds of billions of organisms of eight or 10 strains and that's really what you want.
1: Wow, that's great. Well, so I tell my clients that ask me about home cooking diets for their dogs, I tell them that they need to consult with a veterinary nutritionist. Can you explain why I might tell them that?
0: And that's a good idea, not only because I'm a veterinary nutritionist, but because you want to make sure the food is complete and balanced. And uh, sometimes people give you a recipe or you read something online or in some book, and they're actually not complete and balanced foods. And a lot of dogs do really well on very marginal diets, but that doesn't mean they do exceptionally well. And so you want to consult with a veterinary nutritionist who can make the food complete and balanced. And usually the two main things are there's not enough calcium or there's no source of calcium in the food, or there's no obvious vitamin and mineral supplement in the food. You don't get enough vitamins and minerals from vegetables. And some people, you know, think that if I just give them, you know, uh, frozen green peas and and I boil those and I mix that in with my baked chicken, then it's a complete balanced diet for a dog or cat. It's not even a complete balanced diet for a person. That's why physicians and nutritionists recommend people take multivitamins and minerals. So you really want to work with somebody who can balance these out and make sure everything's there that needs to be there.
1: Yeah, I have clients tell me they're boiling chicken and putting it with rice and I'm like, wait, that's not good enough. Not enough. Well, it was really fun to talk with you today, and I learned some things, and I hope all of my listeners learned some things as well. I would like to thank all of you guys for listening to Dr. Cat Gone to the Dog. And I would like to thank my producer, Mark Winner. And most of all, I would like to thank Dr. Bardis for taking this time out to talk with us today.
0: Now, thank you for inviting me on the show, and I hope this uh, helped people who were listening.
1: Well, I think so. So, you guys all have a wonderful day, and just go out there and raise the ruff. Let's Talk Pets, every week on demand, only on PetLifeRadio.com.